Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Okay, so we just had a little tiny pre-conversation about some things, namely what we're going to talk about today. But I have well, a book that you can read, so when you're ready to hear it. <laughs> I want, I've got my pen and paper right in front of me. What is it? Okay, are you a fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates? Yeah. Um, he, have you read The Water Dancer? No. Oh, that's it. That's your book. Is it a novel? It is a novel. Um, it's almost like magical realism and historical. It has historical elements. So it kind of is about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, but it's also about a particular person in that narrative. Um, the enslaved biracial son of a slave master. So he did you has, see the series on Netflix uh, or Amazon? I'm not sure which called the Underground Railroad. I read the book um, by Colson Whitehead and I, I love Colson Whitehead. I think he's wonderful. Um, we have watched two of those and they need breath between them. It's it's and I think, you know, there's things and I really believe this, that um, that the body stores generationally. And sitting there and watching black bodies get flogged with my black husband is is painful. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing because we watched two episodes of it, and then I said I got to take a break from this. Yeah, yeah, it needs. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Years and years and years ago, I had this notion that I was going to write a a paper or a book or give a talk titled, Reading Gives Me Courage. Mm. I've never written it. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I, um, as you know, and as anybody who listens to me speak or us teach knows, I am a huge reader. I yeah. read a lot. Um, I got introduced to reading before the era of TV. Uh, we didn't have um, TV just came in when I was, I think, maybe in late grammar school, early junior high, mm -hmm. and we had two stations, maybe three. They were on from like 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No and cable, the rest was no. just buzz. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, you got the test pattern with the Native American in the center of it. I don't know if they still show that or not. And when we got our first television, I used to play with the brightness and the horizontal and the vertical controls to, just because it was fun. I never done. But anyway, I read. My mother was a high school senior English teacher, and I, I read. I read. I've read. I, I, I've been reading uh, all of my life, and I just finished reading. One of the best novels I have read in years called Us Against You, which is the sequel to Beartown, written by Frederick Bachman, 
Yeah. I think I have written, I, I think, and I could be wrong. I think I've read everything he's written. Yes, likewise. And I don't know how I started on, on him. It may have even been, did you read A Man Called Ovi when it first came out? That was my first one. It might have been that you mentioned it and I picked it up. I don't remember, but um, but I have since read every book except for the one that you mentioned that is the letter to his son, everything my son needs to know about yeah. life. I, I thought I had read that one, but I read a different one, which is The Way Home Gets Longer and Longer, um, which is about aging and a young a young grandson with his aging grandfather. But Beartown and Us Against Them, I'm still waiting for book number three. Like... <laughs> I love that those two books so much. And so if anyone is listening to this and is looking for a good read, I cried when those were over. I mean, I really laid in bed for about an hour and a half after finishing Us Against Them and just absorbed it, just let it wash over me. And he is such a great narrator of human, the depth of human emotion and the depth of human experience in such a kind of vulnerable, but sweet and true way. I just, I love those books. There's a it, series, it, it's yeah. A, it's a book about love and loyalty and betrayal and forgiveness and growing up character development. Um, that just, it, it, I cannot speak too highly of the book. It's just, it's wonderful. So I had this experience um, warning something is good to trust you about water dentures. Um, and so this is what I did. I went on the, the Google New York Times bestseller fiction list and I wrote down all the ones. And then I went to look at reviews of the book mm -hmm. and they don't measure up. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's me. I used to uh, subscribe to a journal that came out four times a year called bookmarks mm -hmm. and it's about what people are reading and what book clubs are reading. And I may go back and start taking that again. But my original point mm -hmm. is that reading allows us reading fiction, good fiction allows us to enter another world of human emotion and experience and allows us to, to, enter those characters' lives to see how we would do that, what we would do, what our emotions would be. Yeah. Um, and, and reading has always left me with a feeling of encouragement mm -hmm. rather than discouragement. Now, there have been a few books. Um, that one about Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> it's not a cheerful book. <laughs> that was not a good book. Yeah. I mean, it dystopian novels don't do it for me i like some anyway. as you know i love that series the giver and it is a it's a young adult um series about a dystopian society but but it's also about courage and it's also in in its own way about individuation and about a child leaving home to seek a new society that exists in the gray instead of in the black and the white instead of in binaries it's really about recovering memory recovering the stories of human existence and i i, I think that book that book series is wonderful um, but it is a dystopian series <laughs> mm -hmm. um and yeah no i am feel the same about reading i 
you know, I'm just, I'm older than digital natives. We definitely had TV growing up. We never had cable. And I spent days on end in my room reading when I was a child. And uh, that was when I was little, I would get every book I could get my hands on about dogs. (laughs) I read James Harriet's dog stories. He was a vet in Scotland. Mm-hmm. He wrote this fabulous book about dogs and their owners. Um, I loved all stories about dogs, old yeller. Did, did he write all the little creatures? Yes. All creatures yeah. great and small. Yeah. All creatures great and small. Yeah. 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 But, you know, so I think reading has over the course of my lifetime also, and even when yeah. I read philosophy from, you know, 300 BC <laughs> uh, to, to, to now, reading has always provided windows into worlds. And I think that there's a lot of kids and a lot of grownups who feel that way, that through reading, there's, they weren't censored. You know, all parents are happy for their kids to read. And, and a lot of times we're not censored in what we read because the, the just, we're just so happy when our kids want to read. <laughs> and it, it opened up worlds for me that I, I didn't know existed. And maybe that's part of why my mind was broadened. You know, I'm I'm not sure, but. So when we gather for Ordinary Life this week, Mm -hmm. and we will be gathering carefully because of the Delta variant, um, you know, in my counseling work, I get to talk to a lot of medical professionals. And I can tell you that here in Houston, the medical frontline workers are really, really, their morale is really low. They're really, really, really discouraged. Um, We have, the last I heard, which was late yesterday afternoon, we're out of ICU space in the hospitals here. And um, so, when we gather on Sunday, we're going to gather carefully. We can't, uh, it came up in staff meeting yesterday about would we put a stay at home order in place? And Dr. McDonald said, have you ever tried to put toothpaste back in the tube? We probably can't go backwards, but we need to be aware that um, this Delta variant is nothing to be played with. It's a serious, serious thing. Anyway, when we gather Sunday, before we get into the rest of the parable of the prodigal son, I'm going to talk about two books that we will be using in our journey through John. And one will be John Shelby Spong's The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Christian Mystic, and this book, which is Mystical Christianity by John Sanford. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll be saying a few things about it. Now, I won't go on about them, but... Um, I do want people to know they're both very readable books. Mm-hmm. They're not, not not difficult, and they're um, they're amazing in the content that they convey. Mm-hmm. So I want to be talking about that, and then we'll talk about the father character and yeah. the parable. Yeah, which you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I'll do part of it. You'll do part of it. Um, but evidently I'll do the lion's share since I left you hanging the last two weeks. But yeah. 
just a quick note about Spong's book. I think he says in the introduction that this book is a result of calling 3,000 texts on the gospel of John or some Mm -hmm. obscene number like that, you know, that over Mm -hmm. the course of his life, he stayed away from John, but he read texts about it and that this, and then finally he entered into it and that this book, the fourth gospel represents his summation, if you will, of all those texts that he, he gleaned um, for wisdom about John. So I'm appreciative that he's been able to distill it so successfully into one book because I don't well, think we have I, time to read 3000, Bill. <laughs> I, I, I have stayed away from it too because mm-hmm. um, I, I think that even for the most progressive of people in the, who try to adhere to follow the teachings of Jesus, Mm-hmm. That the way we got into um, our first knowledge about Jesus and about his teachings, um, we just almost have this reflex to take the story literally. Yeah. And John is one long parable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been thinking about this as a sort of healing journey, too. Um, with John, because I I think one of the things you and I have talked about is how much that taking John literally has done harm to the average Christian, right? Yeah. Um, It's it's been a bit of a line in the sand. If you don't, you know, that line that people so often use is Jesus either says, is who he says he was, or he was crazy. And it's so binary. And, 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 and I think that the use of John over time has demanded that we choose which side of the line we're on as opposed to kind of dance with it and, and, mm-hmm. and take it figuratively. And even there's this line where, and we'll, of course, we're now getting into it without wanting to get into it, but where um, Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus and Jesus says, well, you, you know, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, that's ridiculous. How can a grown man get back in his mother's womb? And Jesus says, you misunderstand me. You know, so so we have this invitation to not take it literally. And I think that's what you and I obviously are trying to dance with a little bit. So again, I think about this like a healing journey of recovering something about John that I was never taught um, in our broad sort of Southern mostly evangelical culture. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if that's not the tradition we grew up in, we know it because it's so pervasive in this part of the world and the country. Well, it's, you know, now we're getting again into what I think is uh, the the parable of the compassionate father is about, to me, two, maybe three major things. It's about Mm -hmm. inclusivity, it's about compassion. And it's about celebration. Mm-hmm. And so the line in John that many people use to say, Jesus, nobody comes to the Father except by me, tends to make Christianity this exclusive yes. club. And here you have Jesus himself giving a gospel that is good news of everybody is included. Yeah. And then... Some have taken his very teachings and made them exclusive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not inclusive. 
And uh, that to me is a tragedy. So our, our need to belong to something very particular, to be special is so huge. And, that, and it's killing, it's killing this country right it's now. It's killing us. Exactly. It's dividing us further. And I think that the abstraction of saying, well, we're all part of the human race. We all belong is, is difficult for many people to, to hold as a reality because it's frustrating. Well, what does that mean? But where do I in particular belong? And I think you've said this before, I definitely concur. We're kind of in this adolescent stage of development as a country and as a society that's looking for the, who am I? The question, the answer to who am I? And mm -hmm. so to say you're part of this grand, wonderful group called the human race doesn't answer that question satisfactorily for, for the teenage mind, so to speak, you know? Um, so you have heard me say this before, but in the hopes that other people who might be listening to this have not heard it, I think that the primary responsibility of adults after we have been lucky enough to have met the survival needs. You know, we're not living in Afghanistan. We're not running for our lives. We're not in Syria. Mm -hmm. But we have the luxury to sit and talk like this and you know, reflect on books and that sort of thing. Our primary responsibility is to grow, mm -hmm. is to continue to grow in, um, you know, the categories that I keep bringing up are peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. And, and um, I heard Bill Plotkin, who has mm -hmm. his own way of thinking about models of growth and development, mm -hmm. say that their research, when they were coming up with their model of soul developments, he said that they concluded that probably 80% of the adult population in the United States was arrested at late adolescent development. Yeah. I, I don't doubt it. And I think we see that play out in many ways, even right now. Um, there's this just giant chunk in the middle that it, there are extremists on both ends of the bell curve, right? Who, if we mm -hmm. do it this way, we'll be fine. If we do it this way, we'll be fine. And there's a lot of people in the middle who would just kind of want to be told a clear answer. And most people will follow that structure most of the time. Mm -hmm. And how do we engage with that messy middle to deepen our analytical, creative, and solution-oriented thinking, you know, our, our less binary thinking? And, you know, this is such a big, long endeavor because I think that there are ways, so for example, when I was at um, Harvard for doing my master's degree in education and human development and psychology, I took a class on the history of education in America. And one of the things that I learned was that no one system of education has been kept intact long enough to measure how it impacts one child from kindergarten through 12th grade. In other words, we change our structures a lot, but, but we still manage to teach, for example, to a kind of agricultural worldview. 
In other words, the school year is based on an agricultural cal calendar. Um, the time of school is even based on how do we get kids home early enough to help on the farm? You know, so, so on the one hand, we've not stuck with any one thing long enough to see what's working. And on the other hand, the structure itself is antiquated. It doesn't fit what we live in today. You know, so this is, this is like, we've got to go back to just even the structure of, structures of our public education system to be able to create more innovative thinkers. Um, I'm amazed at the sort of very basic level of thinking that my kids are taught. They have had great teachers. I don't want to discount teachers, but the basic level of state approved education is scary. <laughs> It's not creative, innovative, or thought-provoking, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I was listening, I'm listening to the book, uh, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith, the one that I think Josh sent you. And mm -hmm. um, he's a wonderful writer and he makes a point in one of his chapters about history versus nostalgia. And so often we cling to the stories that we've been told whether or not they're true. And in schools, very often we're not taught to unpack those stories, to investigate whether what we think is true is actually true. We become nostalgic about our history. And then when we learn the facts about our history, there's like a crack that opens, right? And, and, and the light begins to shed itself on the dark. And that light can be very painful because when you learn something about your history that you didn't think is true, if you widen the crack, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so it's easier to stick to the stories that teach us about nostalgia and making us feel good about ourselves than it is to teach critical thinking about why do we think things were this way? You know, because the latter, it, if we just teach to nostalgia to make us feel good about ourselves, we're not required to grow. And, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I do. Yeah. So that okay, now I'm I'm on a tear. So please interrupt as soon as I finish this sentence. Okay. One of the things I also think that the prodigal son parable is about is grief. Um, and the father can be so compassionate, welcoming, and inclusive because he knows deep grief. He's let that crack open. He's been shattered by the loss of a son <laughs> and maybe even the damaged relationship with another son, you know? Well, I said Sunday um, that the parable is about death. Mm -hmm. the, the father is declared dead by the son. He declares himself dead by giving away his inheritance. When the younger son is in the what's called the far country, he realizes that he's dead. He's considered dead by the community. And the elder son, as we will get into in a couple of weeks, has never really come alive because he has remained a servant instead of a son all the time that he's been in the story. And I said Sunday, and I will say again this week, the parable was never intended to be treated like we're treating it, but I don't know how else to open up the story for its many possibilities unless we, we visit it um, multiple times. I, it's, it's the, the 
most beloved favorite story that Jesus ever told. And I don't remember who said this, but somebody said it's the greatest short story ever written. Mm. Um, and it's possibilities for trying to understand it are, are, are virtually limitless because um, one of the things I'm going to try to say Sunday, if I, if I can put it on paper and then put it in words, this business of the son, the younger son coming to himself, mm -hmm. um, that self, which Thomas Merton referred to as the true self, is endlessly discoverable because it's nothing permanent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And if the father is symbolic also of the younger son's future self, what the son sees is hope. I hope you say that Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, really? yeah. yeah, but that, that's part of what I'm, I'm toying with in my writing about it is that the young son coming back in, in shambles. And one of the things that I think is important to point out in the painting of the prodigal son that we're using by Rembrandt, the prodigal son is bald. Now when compares that baldness to a newborn, literally being born anew, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he's kneeling right at the sort of womb space, if you will, of where that would be in a mother's body. And, and we've talked about how the father is sort of maternal and paternal, masculine, feminine. And so what he sees as he gazes up is, this too shall pass. I will be okay if I see myself in the gaze of this older symbolic person. And I think that that's a really powerful act of faith to not know how he's going to come home, what the process of coming through the dark night of the soul is like, but the trust that it will be okay. Mm -hmm. Now and says that when he first encountered the painting in St. Petersburg, that he had this incredible emotional response of wanting both to, to laugh and to cry. Mm. And that um, as he got permission to be able to sit and look at the painting for hours at a time, which is really remarkable. Yeah. Um, that he became aware that both in the story and he thinks it's conveyed in the painting that the father puts no conditions whatsoever on the returning son. Mm -hmm. He doesn't chastise him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ask him what he's been up to. He doesn't say, well, you can, you're welcome back if. Mm. He just elevates him to a status on par with the father. Mm -hmm. I think that that is the relief that comes from having been through deep grief too. You know, mm -hmm. that, that suffering begets a certain kind of generosity of the soul. And I think that that's what we see in the father. And, and, and again, if we see all of these figures intertwined as one, 
that's also what the young son knows he has available to him is that same mm-hmm. kind of generosity and, and hope. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, there's so many ways to go with this parable. And we're in some, I, I still love Catherine Keller's work around the depth around theology. She's so willing to sit in the murky waters of not knowing and how it is that that murkiness, the non-literal, the parabolic, the kind of uh, mystical interpretation of these things allows us to be in the depth in a way that being literal just can't, that we, we, it just can't. And I think this parable is an invitation to sit with depth theology, you know, as well as depth psychology. It, it has both elements to it. Well, I want uh, both of us to say Sunday what this elevation to the same level as the Father is about, because I think that another hallmark of healthy spirituality is this assumption of adulthood growing Mm up. I think that's, Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. Yeah. It's important both spiritually as well as psychologically, right? For the yeah. for the grown-up child to experience him or herself as an independent being. <laughs> so, so a bit of trivia before we go. How's it going with mm-hmm. your new dog? Well, she it, this will be edited out, but she was yapping her head off at the beginning of this podcast. That's She's okay. not happy you can about leave it. In. <laughs> not happy about being in a kennel right now. Um, she is the sweetest, cutest, funniest little puppy. And we're having a hell of a time potty training her. I've not ever had this much difficulty with a dog potty training. Hmm. Um, yeah, she's just kind of, she'll go outside and go to do her business, come back inside and 20 minutes, 20 minutes later, just pee. And you're, I'm just kind of wondering when is it going to sink in kiddo? <laughs> So we'll get there. No, 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 no baby stays in diapers forever. <laughs> right. Right. So, well, you're feeling okay. I am. Yeah. Still a little bit of um, congestion, but from what I've read, these things can linger for quite some time. I, I can't smell, for example, but, um, but I, I feel fine and my tests have been negative and my family's all well, just kind of you know, we don't yet know that much about long COVID, what sticks and what keeps hanging around and what goes away. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Florida and Texas are the epicenters right now. I uh, saw Stephen King interview on TV last night and he was not complimentary of Mr. DeSantos in Florida where he lives six months a year. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. don't understand. I'm the system is broken. Yeah. And HISD is taking an emergency vote tomorrow on whether or not to issue a mask mandate against the governor's orders. You know, bear in mind that kids under 12 are going to be exposed and are very vulnerable to, to mm-hmm. Delta. And that makes us more vulnerable. And um, 
I really hope that HISD votes for a, ma- a mask mandate. Yeah. It's it's the one sure thing that we can provide for our kids to have some layer of protection. Yeah. But, yeah. You need to do that. Well, I'm glad you're well, and I'm glad that we're going to keep together on Sunday. Yeah, we'll look forward to it. I'll see you then. All right. Okay, bye. bye.